Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have a friend that I connected with through LinkedIn many months ago, and we've been going back and forth. And I've, I've really enjoyed the content that he's been creating about the public markets. Charles Freeman. Charles, how are you today? Good. Thanks, Brian, for having me. Absolutely. So Charles is the president of Adapt First Investments. He is a chartered, chartered financial analyst. He partners with financial advisors to provide investment support and resources in a much more personal way than they otherwise would. It includes model investments, management, custom portfolios, individual stock research, industry sector analysis, and much more. He is a big Bloomberg terminal nerd, so I think we're getting into that as well. And he helps advisors navigate the markets and support them in sharing investment information with their clients in an easy and understandable way. So we are recording this on Friday, January 8th. So much has gone on the last... 12 months with COVID, the election, the assault on the Capitol yesterday. I'm not even sure what else to include in that, but there's, you know, the markets seem to, to like all of what they're seeing recently with uh, Congress going, you know, to the Dems. Could you maybe just give us a very high level state of play on, on where you think public markets are as of, call it, you know, January of 2021. Um, sure. I mean, I think that um, it's it's been a pretty bizarre market, certainly over the last 12 months. In that, you know, we've been hit with something we've never really had to deal with before. You know, being the global pandemic. And what's been really interesting about the whole thing is that we literally, you know, back in March, you know, we saw entire countries, you know, shutting down. Um, industries that have just been shattered due to the effects of of the pandemic, and we're still we're still dealing with a lot of those issues. I mean, just this morning, you know, the the December jobs number we actually lost 140,000 jobs, which is the first time that's that's actually ha happened since April. So even though we've kind of had a a partial bounce back with uh, with some of the economic recovery. As things have kind of started to open back up, you know, with the resurgence we've seen um, here over the last you know month or so, we're we're starting to see that that trend reverse back. So, so the economic activity has just been devastated. I mean, even uh, I mean, kind of 
talking about unemployment, you know, in 2020, we lost, you know, over nine, almost nine and a half million jobs. And that's more than 2008 and 2009 combined. So it's pretty shocking to see that level of devastation and a stock market that not only recovered, you know, the losses that we saw back in March, but has gone on to surge to, to new highs. So, you know, we sort of sit here at, in January and, and sort of looking at everything and yeah, how do you explain that? And, you know, I think it really just comes down to this sort of undying faith in the Federal Reserve to just basically write a blank check to say, you know, we're going to keep rates, you know, at zero, basically, as long as we need to forever. And uh, we're going to just print as much money uh, as we need to, to to sort of support everything. And, and investors have really just sort of locked in on that. And I think that that's what's really driven. They, they've essentially ignored any type of bad news that has come out since, since COVID was sort of first recognized back in the, in the spring of last year and, and just sort of bought because of that. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody could argue that we're not in the midst of uh, a financial bubble, another financial bubble, and, and possibly one of the greatest financial bubbles in history. So for me, looking at this, I mean, I, I'm actually <laughs> really scared right now. So, because I, I started my career you know, in 1998. So I've, I've traded through, you know, the tech bubble bursting and then even uh, in the collapse of 08 or 09. And so I've, I've seen this type of thing before and, you know, it, it can be pretty scary on the other side. So I want to dig into that a little bit, what you were alluded to earlier about how the market has really shrugged off all this bad news seemingly since, I guess, Mayor June when it when it ticked back up it hasn't really looked back especially the the tech sector obviously the fang trade with the big names apple google facebook microsoft amazon etc can you explain this disconnect between the real economy and the stock market well you know what's interesting about the fang stocks is you know all of those companies are are and have been leaders in their their industries um and they have i mean essentially you know monopolies or duopolies um in in the areas that they um do business and and so you know their performance over the last you know you know 10 years i mean really since the great financial crisis I mean, it's just shown that, I mean, obviously these companies have um, a great product and people really love, you know, what they do. Um, what was kind of interesting about, you know, the pandemic was, you know, we, we sort of saw that pullback even, even in these stocks. And, and I would, I even sort of argued pre-pandemic that, that valuations were were getting to extreme levels on a lot of these companies, and um, so when the pandemic happened, you know we had that sort of big pullback. But then, what was kind of fascinating was all, all almost all of these companies, same companies, sort of benefited, you know, from the pandemic. You know, restaurants and cruise lines. I mean, you know, those types of companies got crushed, but these companies actually benefited, you know, people, you know, working more from home or ordering more stuff online. And so it actually accentuated the attractiveness of these companies from a narrative standpoint. And so once you, you started getting people sort of trying to buy the dip and, and then that's gotten augmented with, you know, all the money that's, that's flown out of the, uh, or come from the fed you know, it sort of, again, went back to these same names and um, has has created this really high level of concentration. So a lot of the market indexes have actually recovered, mainly due to the performance of these really, really large, you know, big tech names. And um, we actually haven't seen that type of concentration uh, since uh, since 1999. 
which again is, is kind of one of the red flags that's out there. And so, you know, the election is, is over, hopefully the vaccines rolling out a lot of expectation that there's going to be a huge stimulus bill on the horizon. As you mentioned, the fed is going to remain extremely accommodative um, for the foreseeable future rates will stay low for the foreseeable future. Are you bullish or bearish on 2021 in terms of the market and the broader economy? That's a, it's a really hard question because I think you got, you've just got two very large uh, themes kind of working against each other. You've got, as I've sort of mentioned, the, the Fed and there's sort of the, the committed support, which investors have leaned very heavily on over the last year. And then what they've done, you know, markets are forward looking, right? So, you know, they're looking at the stimulus and they're, they're sort of pulling those future returns forward. So it's kind of like we've, we've seen a lot of those gains. As we start to actually get more of a recovery as, as you know, the vaccine gets more distributed and some of these companies kind of slowly start to come or these industries slowly you know, come back and we're at, we're sort of allowed to possibly get back to normal, you know, then the question becomes, well, you know, do we need the support, you know, that the Fed has given on the monetary side and even on the fiscal side? I mean, at, what's, at what point does that start getting pulled back? And if that's the case, you know, does the economic recovery support the valuations where we're at that have already sort of been priced? So, the market is priced in that, even though it hasn't happened yet. I, I would actually probably be more bearish, to be honest. I think that there is a ton of downside risk, given all of the uh, the sort of the red flags that I see. And now that doesn't mean that the market couldn't grind higher. And I think that's kind of what we've seen is, you know, because the Fed has remained so committed, because we ended up getting this blue wave you know, we're going to get more stimulus, you know, markets are like, they can just sort of keep rationalizing this increase in price, even though so many metrics suggest that we're, we're sort of so far out on a limb. So I think we could grind higher. So, um, but I think there is a huge downside risk. So, I mean, if I had to sort of pick one, I would be more bearish because I think you need to hedge that downside risk at this point. A lot of good news has been priced into the market is is what i'm hearing and you know i haven't really been a market participant uh since something that's occurred i was in law school during 08 for better or worse based on your experience what are some signposts or things that we should be looking for that would be potentially a catalyst for this this bubble popping you know my my research is has really come down to um and i've and i've really kind of spent a lot of time on on thinking about that i think it comes down to what could possibly take the fed out of out of this out of the scenario right because it really going back to the recovery of 0809 you know the things that the federal reserve has done over the last 10 years has really supported you know, the market with all the QE, um, even any time the market even kind of wobbled, the Fed would kind of step in and, and pull rates back. And and I think it's created this sort of dependency from investors to like, okay, they, they sort of know that the Fed is going to be there no matter what, if things start going off the rails. So that is, has been exacerbated, you know, over the last year. And it's, and it's gotten to this point where I mean, I've used the analogy, it's kind of like a drug addict, you know, it's like, you're just sort of more and more strung out on, on this drug that the Fed has given. And, um, you know, so what, what changes that situation? And I think if we start to see um, higher than expected inflation, that's something that is, could potentially neutralize what the Fed can do. And, and that's also not really being priced in at all. I mean, you know, inflation hasn't been an issue in a long, long time. And I think that, uh, the, and there's been reasons, there's been a lot of deflationary forces for sure. But given the amount of stimulus that's happening in the situation, 
I think that we could start seeing uh, inflation really tick up in 2021. And if that happens, that is going to sort of force the Fed's hand. And then when investors sort of look at that situation, they're like, wait a minute, you know, maybe they won't be there. Then there's a potential for the, uh, the house of cards to fall. So that's, that's the biggest risk I see right now in 2021. And a lot of people have, have asserted that CPI, which is kind of inflation gauge that the Fed and others watch is outdated and not a very good barometer of what's happening in that sector. Are there, are there metrics or data points that you track to gauge inflation? Yeah, the, well, the personal consumption uh, expenditures uh, indicator is the Fed's kind of preferred, you know, metric for what's going on. And um, it's kind of interesting. I, I've dug into that. The two largest contributors to that indicator are uh, housing and, and health care. And both account for a little over 20% of that, that headline number. And so what's, what's kind of interesting is, you know, we sort of get monthly updates on this and, and anecdotally, you know, I see at least here in central North Carolina, I mean, if you think about housing, I mean, with, with rates, you know, mortgage rates at historic lows, I mean, you can't find a house. I mean, every house that goes up on the market uh, around here, it, it has, you know, eight offers in 24 hours and people are willing to pay, Ten or fifteen thousand dollars over the asking to be able to get it. So you're starting to see. So you know, I I posted a chart a little while back on LinkedIn about median home prices, and you can just see that they're they're surging. There's a typical seasonality with home prices where you'll see a surge in the spring, and then you you sort of get a pullback in the fall and winter. And this is, and this year we're not actually seeing that. We're actually seeing those prices continue to rise, even through a seasonal downturn. And and I think it has a lot to do with you know just the demand that's out there. It it was really sort of surprising to me that when I was looking at the PCE, I was like, those numbers or that is not really showing up in the numbers, or at least yet. And I couldn't understand why. So I actually called the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis. And I, I talked to a guy in the department and he said, well, you know, it's the calculation. It's not, we're not actually looking exactly at home prices. We're looking at, I mean, and it, the, the complicate or the, uh, the uh, formula is really complicated. And he was kind of explaining all the different things they look at, but the, the big takeaway that, that I had from that conversation was even though we get a monthly update on that number, there is a, there is a big part of that number that's actually using annual data, not monthly data, but annually annual data that's collected by surveys from the Census Bureau. So even though we're sort of getting this monthly update, there, it's not actually reflecting what's going on over the last month per se. And so that just suggests there's a lag in the data. And I mean, he even said he expects some of that, some of these changes to flow through into 2021 as some of those annual numbers get updated. So I I think there's this sort of underlying inflation that's out there that it's just not really showing up in, in a lot of the official numbers. And I think as we start to see that, that's going to bring that issue uh, much more to the forefront and it'll be, it it could be potentially uh, very impactful. Yeah. I had a colleague yesterday in the office, younger person, you know, in the market told me that the average home price for the last, I think it was December, right? So the December numbers came out for Nashville, Davidson County, which granted is a really big geographic area, but the average home price was $550,000, $550,000, wow. which just yeah. stunned me. I know Nashville's a hot market, but that just seemed outrageous to me. So I agree with you. I, I think these numbers are capturing the whole. And along those lines, are you, are you worried at all about deflation or is it purely inflation that has you concerned near term? You know, I mean, there, there's been a, a like, 
you know, there's been a lot of deflationary forces out there. I mean, one that I am kind of concerned about is, um, is in the labor market. Um, we haven't, you know, wage inflation over the last decade, you know, typically when we see as unemployment kind of came down from, you know, the, the heights of the great financial crisis, it dropped much lower than a lot of people thought like the natural level of, uh, of an employment would be sort of in just going back to, you know, 2018, 2019. But we really haven't seen a lot of wage inflation. And I think, you know, and it's like, well, why is that? You know, what's changing? And one of the things that I think it sort of speaks to is, you know, the use of technology in, in the workplace on, on various levels. And, you know, the things like, you know, robotics and automation. And in fact, I was just sort of, you know, reading a uh, article on Bloomberg right before this call, and it was talking about how you know one of the things the Democrats are looking to do is raise the uh, minimum wage to fifteen dollars, but that is going to have a tremendous impact on the restaurant industry, and so the margins there in that in in the restaurant industry are are like you know like you know mid single digits. And, and so if you're, if you're raising labor costs like that, it's going to really be impactful on that industry. And so one of the alternatives would be to, you know what, we're going to invest in maybe these sort of um, self-service ordering systems and, and eliminate, you know, these, these jobs. So, you know, a higher level of uh, unemployment you know, over, over time because of technology and, and automation and things, I, I am kind of concerned about that. And it just sort of depends. I mean, there's that, that's obviously a long-term trend, but, but certainly deflationary. So let's, let's stick on the inflation topic for a minute. You know, real rates are negative. Nominal rates are, you know, zero basically. And a lot of these big tech names are trading at crazy multiples. Well, there's not really another place to go right now with, with given all of that. And we're all, I mean, I, I agree with you. It seems like we're in a bubble. It seems like there's a lot of market exuberance and a really huge amount of good news priced in. But given all that, what is the strategy for, for being a market participant right now? Uh, and I know you can't pick out specific names, but I mean, how do you play this market right now? So I, I think it, I think it's sort of one of those. It's it's a market where you have to really take a risk managed approach to say that you know to to sort of say you know what I'm going all in and there's no other place to go so I'm just going to go all in stocks. I think that's um, it, it's just very dangerous to do that at this point in time given given all of the factors there. And, you know, for somebody who's like 30 years old, you know, I could sort of understand them saying, you know what, if we get a 50 or 60% decline, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to buy more. But there, you know, for people that are, are definitely that have accumulated a lot of wealth and are, are, you know, I would say over 60, one of the things that's happened is with the demise of pension plans, you know, more and more money has has sort of gone into 401ks and a lot of people's uh, retirement wealth is is in the stock market. So I think taking a risk and managed approach uh, makes a lot of sense right now. And what I mean by that is to your point earlier about looking at a lot of the growth names, I mean, have really outperformed, um, you know, over the last uh, seven, eight years, especially. And I think going forward with the change, you know, um, in leadership, uh, also on the backside of a recession, if we do end up coming out of this, if you kind of look at history as an example, you know, I think the value names, you know, things like industrials and materials, even financials, those types of sectors that have really underperformed relative to growth for the last decade, I think have a, uh, have a real opportunity to, um, to, to go up going forward. So I think having a, a more of a sector approach on your equity exposure makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I charted basically the ratio between growth and value. And, uh, and I look at sort of extreme levels by plotting out standard deviations. And that 
those value stocks were hit an extreme level of uh, being undervalued relative to growth over the last year. And so I think, you know, having, having some equity exposure, but just having it in maybe different sectors and doing a rotation maybe out of some of those, you know, higher growth sectors like tech and communications, just take your profits and buy in um, some of these, you know, relatively cheaper assets. And then if we do get a pullback, you know, you would think that, that we would see less of a decline uh, in some of those, in some of those names. So within equities, I would say that. And I would also say um, maybe having a lower equity exposure because of the extreme uh, valuations and looking at some alternative asset classes. And, uh, and that's where commodities, I think, make a lot of sense right now, especially precious metals. I've, uh, I've been sort of an advocate for precious metals for a while. And I think that their case is even stronger going forward. And uh, so adding some exposure to metals and also looking at some, some specific currencies that could be more defensive. Uh, and that's a little more out of the box than, than a typical advisor might recommend. But I think, you know, looking at certain currencies, the dollar, if you look at what's been going on with the dollar over the last, you know, 10 years, the, the dollar has had this sort of uptrend and it actually broke to the downside over the last year and, and has significantly weakened. The last time we saw, you know, uh, the dollar into a, a more sustained downtrend was the 2000 to 2008-9 era. And you saw international uh, really, you know, outperform. So even within, kind of swinging back to equities, I guess. So even within equities, maybe looking at some more international opportunities as well. But with, if you're, if the dollar is looking to, you know, sort of decline, then other currencies out there uh, should appreciate because those are, it's a pair trade. And so I've actually, I'm incorporating some of that into my defensive strategy to, uh, to try to take advantage of that. Yeah, it's a great segue into a topic I did want to get into with you a little bit is what are your thoughts about emerging markets and frontier markets, especially given what you just said? I mean, at this point, everything is overvalued, <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's almost like you have to kind of lean on that relative valuation situation. But, but again, going back to that dollar trend, I mean, if we look back, you know, EM in the first, after the 2000 crash and, and leading up to the, um, the peak in 07, you know, emerging markets just trounced, you know, U.S. Uh, returns. And I think that given that we're, it looks like we're sort of entering into another sustained period of dollar weakness, we, we could see that same sort of trend happening where EM is going to be more supported kind of going forward. And, and, I, and you know, with EM, I, I still go back to, I think there's a demographic story there where if you look at the demographics around the world, uh, developed markets um, just, I mean, you know, Japan and Europe are worse than the U.S., but the EM countries have a much more attractive uh, demographic base where they have more people going into the working class. And also, you know, the wealth creation that's happening there, uh, I think that just speaks to higher potential growth uh, in those markets, uh, which which could be a tailwind for sure. So I think the EM is, is could be very supportive going forward over the next couple of years because of that. And again, I know you can't make specific recommendations, but when our family has tried to tackle emerging markets, frontier markets, it's tricky in our experience channel to best access them. Do you advocate typically for kind of an index fund approach, or do you do you pick countries that you like, or geographic areas that you like, or it's such a large world and and names that are unknown to us? How do you go mm -hmm. about kind of tapping into that world? Yeah, it, it's it's really difficult, and and it's a great question. To be honest, I, I have in the past, you know, there was a point in time. I guess it was. I don't know, maybe six, six, seven years ago or so that, you know, I tried to take a more thematic approach to EM and I was looking at the consumer trends kind of 
kind of like I was referring to a second ago. I think that, you know, as the the emerging consumer of these countries starts to make more more wealth or create more wealth, you know, looking focusing on sectors in EM that are more consumer discretionary and and things like that um, would have a higher potential return. But what I found was that actually didn't translate. There wasn't a very big differential between having a broad market exposure and then being more thematic. There might be an argument for uh, thematic tech, which we've sort of seen um, in, in some of these other places like mobile payments. And, and again, some of those trends, um, some of those stocks have, have done really well. You also get back into the you know, valuation issue with them. So I would still say probably taking a broader market approach to EM still makes, makes more sense because you kind of cover all the bases in that regard and, and try to, because that's the thing. If you, what I've learned over the last 20 years is that, you know, when you start getting too thematic, you can make a really convincing argument for a certain theme and then it might just not happen and then you miss out. So, uh, so I think taking a broad market approach makes sense there. So I want to talk a little bit, and you touched on this earlier in the conversation, but I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Does, does debt on the federal or sovereign level matter anymore in terms of ratio to GDP, et cetera? I used to think so. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, there's actually a comment sort of somewhat related to that. Uh, a guy uh, on one of my LinkedIn posts had written that, Charles, we should just take all of our finance books that we study in, intently for for 30 years uh, or 100 years um, and, and just burn them because it, it doesn't even matter anymore. And I, And I don't know that I really agree with that. To say that it doesn't matter, I, I don't think I can just sort of throw away 100 years of financial history and, and say, yes, it really is different. And, you know, we're just have to just readjust to the current environment. I think at some point it does matter. Um, the question is, is comes back to what, you know, what is the catalyst? I mean, like, you know, what investors look at. You know, a lot of people, I, I'm not an a, a efficient market uh, advocate, so I do not think markets are efficient. In fact, I think they're, like we've seen this year, I think there can be a lot of information that shows up that gets completely ignored because of something else, because there's an, another overarching theme. And, and that's been very clear over 2020. So even though a lot of those numbers have been completely ignored up to this point. You know, what is what is the catalyst that's gonna to say, hey, this is crazy. Like, what are we doing? Um, because it will matter, I think, at some point. It, the the big question is, is you know, what what is that? You know, again, I kind of kind of go back to this inflation idea where it's when it's not an issue. You know, you look at Japan as an example. Um, that's kind of like they've just, <laughs> like the amount of monetary policy and stimulus they've done is just unbelievable. And a lot of people have thought, you know, Japan would just totally implode at some point. And they just kind of keep trucking along and, you know, trillions here, trillion there. And, you know, but inflation hasn't been an issue, right? You know, and, and maybe that's the reason they've been able to kind of sustain what they've do what they've been doing without there being any broader, you know, consequences. I mean, demographically, as I mentioned, you know, their population is actually going down. You know, they they have a very large amount of uh, people that are that are over 65. So you don't have the same type of consumerism that you would have in the U.S. So, you know, I think that part of the reason why the Fed has kind of gotten off the hook with what they've been able to do is because we haven't seen any kind of inflation happen to date. And that's why I'm really concerned about 2021, because if we do start to see a lot of these things flow through and we get a higher, you know, the bump up in housing. And, and I, didn't even, and I didn't talk about the, 
the healthcare situation, you know, another, the other big part of the PCE number is, is healthcare. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of expenses with COVID even beyond that, you know, the, the baby boomers, as they're entering into retirement, there's going to be more and more money spent on uh, in demand for healthcare kind of going forward because of the boomers entering retirement. So I think we could see some inflation there uh, showing up as well as the demand for those services increase. You know, as we start to see this, you know, is is some of those numbers really going to matter? So, I mean, I, I think at some point they do. Yeah. I mean, my personal and I'm not a you know pure finance person, but it, it seems like the fact pattern we've fallen into is politicians have realized that they can browbeat the Fed and use the Treasury as a means to avoid long recessionary cycle periods to afford them the ability to get reelected. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I think the last couple of administrations have use their bully pulpit to get the Fed to do what they want to mm -hmm. avoid what would historically have been naturally recessionary cycle cycles occurring. And now I think we've kind of made an Austrian deal with the devil and really can't go back necessarily. And now given the debt structure and the percentage of debt we have, inflation is just not a real option because we just won't be able to pay our, our debts down. So I, I don't know what the end game looks like there. And Yellen... You know, I know the street likes her, Capitol Hill likes her, you know, she has great credentials, but I, I don't see anything different occurring during her tenure. No, I mean, I actually, you know, I was, to be honest, I was sort of disappointed in, in hearing about that because I, I look at Yellen as, I, I really feel like a, a lot of this, you know, QE was sort of a, a grand experiment in a lot of ways. You know, Bernanke had been a student of the Great Depression and he, you know, he did a lot of what he did because he said, okay, if they had done this back during the Great Depression, it wouldn't have been so bad, right? And, and I do think that Bernanke uh, really saved uh, our, our economy in a lot of ways coming out of the great financial crisis. The, the problem that I, I think what ended up happening was, you know, when Yellen took over for Bernanke, things were getting better. You know, unemployment was coming down. Things were, things were getting a lot better. And she did not normalize rates. Like I think a lot of us felt like, you know, should have happened. And so I think her unwillingness to kind of, and, and maybe, you know, it's political pressure. I mean, for whatever reason it was, the unwillingness to kind of try to get back to a little bit more normal uh, rate stance it left us less, you know, less sort of ammo for when we hit the next crisis. And so it's like, you know, you just kind of, you know, the Fed, and I think that's why they did what they did back in, um, back in April. It's, it's, they just have to keep going bigger and bigger and whatever, and, and the things that they're doing, because they're sort of painted into this corner now. And to your point, it's like, you know, what they've tried to do is moderate the normal business cycle. But in doing that, I think what the trade-off is, is what you're doing is you're creating a boom-bust cycle. You know, if you just sort of left it at the normal rate, you know, the it might be, you know, lower, smaller, you know, peaks and valleys. And now you're still going to get the ups and downs, but they're just much larger and more intense. And you know, is, is that a better alternative? I don't know. I, I, I don't think it is, but, um, at this point, I, I think it's hard. It's hard to go back, you know, at, cause we're, we've sort of gone down this road and, and there's no easy way to, to, uh, to turn around. And my personal opinion is, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's exacerbating these, this volatility and these kind of massive, bulls and bear cycles, but also creating a very much a barbell market participation where affluent individuals who have liquidity understand the cycle can, you know, participate when the market is getting crushed, ride that wave. Whereas, you know, the majority of the middle class of America or the vast population just don't have the wherewithal to to participate in those type of updrafts and downdrafts. And then you've got kind of the retail day trader with the Robinhood effect happening 
that kind of seems like the two extremes and it's mm-hmm. really just ending that gap. So we've got 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> it's been an awesome conversation. I want to go to a bit of a lightning round if you're open to it as we finish up here. And, um, you know, I, I it's just kind of thought, where are your thoughts on the energy sector right now? Do you think we've hit peak oil consumption? Do you own any energy names, multinationals, oil and gas, natural gas, all of it? What do you think? You know, so energy is in uh, is in a state of transition. I mean, you know, structurally, you know, you, when you kind of look at supply, I think that um, there's just no way you're gonna you're gonna see levels like we saw at one point. I mean, there's just so much supply out there, and and I think there's been this real impetus to to start to transition to more, you know, cleaner alternatives, and and the cost structure for a lot of those alternatives has has come down to make them, you know, a, a more realistic option. What I what I think for the big companies and 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 there's a there's a couple that have already you know started this transition. You know, it, it's diversifying their portfolio, right? It's it's not being so dependent on oil specifically. It's going to be sort of this sort of multi approach of, you know having all of those things um, available. I mean, that's the only way they're going to survive. But I think the fact that, you know, oil will hang around much longer because it's just going to be so cheap. So, yeah, I think it's just a, a change of strategy, you know, for those companies to uh, to survive. Yeah, I think, again, these are my personal thoughts. I think oil is going to be a larger percentage of of oil is used towards non-transportation than we think of, mm-hmm. but I still really think it's going to be a secular decline. And personally, I, I feel like that's why you're seeing a lot of these Middle East nations pivot back towards Israel and the foreign diplomacy aspect of it, I think is going to be fascinating to watch because I really do believe that they understand that Long-term, they're going to need to open up their capital markets for other options. They can't just be wholly dependent on, on oil moving forward. Do you own Tesla? Um, I, I don't. Um, I did have it in my personal account um, a while back, and, and I sold it. Actually, bought. I was in pretty early back when uh, the only car they had was the, uh, the Roadster. So even before you know, the Model S was in production. And I, I sold it mainly because there were real questions about, you know, solvency and, and you know, were they actually going to make it? They were having a lot of production issues. And the main reason why I sold it actually, though, was because for, for a long time, they were kind of the only game in town. And all of the car manufacturers now, though, are in the process of producing electric models. You know, they're, they're chasing you know, chasing them. And um, so to me, it's like, well, you know, the competition is, is going to really start to ramp up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've done well, I've got a good profit, so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take it off the table. You know, subsequently, um, <laughs> they ended up, uh, you know, not going bankrupt um, and, and sort of pulling through. And, and now there's just been this crazy speculation. So, you know, I have a hard time seeing how any of that value is justified. But I think that's also a sign of, again, sort of a red flag when, I mean, I saw similar things in 1999 when um, when the speculation was just off the charts. So I almost look at it as a case, uh, a case study and, uh, you know, this is, we're we're just really in a dangerous spot right now because you know, this type of thing is going on. I think today, and, you know, I have no idea what the vagaries of the market are with trading, but I think Elon is now the richest man in the world. Yeah. Well, I saw, I saw a post earlier today. It was like, there was a t-shirt and it was like Elon for president. (laughs) So that wouldn't surprise me. Well, it would take a constitutional amendment, but Hey, given our current track record, I mean, He's a pretty good salesman, right? So <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could probably make that happen. Yeah, 
let's we'll we'll stick with the markets um <laughs> do you do you own bitcoin i don't and uh i i've been asked that question a lot i am not a, an advocate of of cryptocurrencies and, and my stance on that on them has been you know currencies by definition are a store of value and the the fact that you have a fiat currency you know you have an agency a government behind it saying, you know, this piece of paper is worth a dollar. And you just really don't have that with, uh, with things like, you know, with Bitcoin. So it's just really been hard for me to, um, to get behind that, that as a, as an investment. So what I can't, what I do think is valuable though, is the blockchain technology and what I could sort of see in the future. And, and it's already starting to happen is, is governments looking to you know take that blockchain technology and creating a digital currency so you could have a digital currency and you could have an, an authority sort of backing that up so i could see that in the future but it's just i've not been an advocate of, of things like bitcoin i'm too scared to do it <laughs> <laughs> right. i think i understand it maybe but it's scary to me yeah do you own gold? As I mentioned, yeah, I, I have been a fan of precious metals for a while. You know, gold and silver. Um, I, I think uh, it, it's it's interesting. They're they're, you know, as an asset class, they um, are are somewhat tricky because they can be defensive and speculative at the same time. So sometimes they can they can trade, you know, as an equity, and then other times. You know, gold is often called the fear, the fear trade. So when things are really bad, you know, people want to buy gold. And so uh, I think in this environment, it's been really interesting because, again, there's a lot of talk about, you know, where the dollar, you know, going down. And, and to your point about real yields, I mean, gold is very correlated with real yields. So as real yields have gone negative, it's been very positive for gold. And, and certainly um, there's, you know, some arguments to be, you know, that it that could be an inflation hedge, which, which again, I, you know, I think that's one of the big risks. And silver is really interesting, too, because silver has always sort of been known as leveraged gold. And silver, I think, actually even has is more attractive in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of silver in industrial production. You know, not only can it be looked at as as a you know quasi defensive investment because of for a lot of the same reasons gold is, even even in a um, reflation type recovery situation, because of its use in on the industry side, it's kind of a it's a win there too. So silver is kind of a win win in both regards. So those are those are two. And actually, from a technical standpoint. You know, they uh, silver broke out of a, a long-term sort of um, trading range uh, last year, and even though both gold and silver have kind of pulled back some, they've recently kind of popped back up. So I think both of those are uh, are attractive. Next year, so January eighth of twenty twenty-two, is the ten-year Treasury closer to one percent or two percent? Uh, I think two percent. I think that. You know, we crossed over the one percent the other day, and and I think with what we're seeing, you know, from a political standpoint, with the change, also I think unless you know there's some sort of weird thing that happens with the vaccine that turns us all into zombies, you know, I think that we could certainly get get broader vaccine distribution, and that could help again, return us to a more normal type of situation. As we return normal, I think that's going to push yields up. And again, you know, kind of going back to inflation, that's going to be, if we start getting higher inflation, that's going to put, put upward pressure on yields. So I, I see yields going up from here. And again, that's where it's going to be really tricky for the Fed kind of getting into 2021 and 22. They may have to Kind of make some adult decisions about what to do and um it'll be interesting to see how that's interpreted by the market um well charles uh we're bumping up against the hour thank you so much it's been a fun conversation and really appreciate it uh yeah thanks thanks so much for, for having me it's, this has been awesome yeah it's i mean i really like your take on things and on those lines 
I'm a big fan of your newsletter and your LinkedIn content, which I know are kind of um, related. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? They want to get added to your distribution list to see some of the content you're creating, um, or they want to learn more about your firm and your services. Probably the best way. I mean, I guess there's probably three best ways to reach me. My uh, my LinkedIn profile uh, is is I'm pretty active on that, and then also uh, my email address uh, or my well, let's just say my website is www.adaptfirst.com, uh, which takes you to my website, and I just I post my blog right on the homepage. So there's an email or there's a sign up there to uh, to receive content. I've taken a little bit of break from from writing uh, over the holidays, so that's going to kind of get kicked back up here in the next week or two. And then you know just a direct email, uh, Charles at adaptfirst.com. Um, I'm happy to 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 talk you know more about with anyone about the company and what I do and and how it can be a resource for them. And one one question I did forget. You think UNC is going to win the national championship this year? <laughs> um, I I have a hard time seeing that. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I love my Tar Heels, but uh, you know, we I think we're in one of those years. It's a, it's a growth year, you know. So uh, and that's okay. It is okay. Well, Charles, thanks again. This is a lot of fun, and really appreciate it. And I really encourage anyone listening to this to reach out get on his distro list. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and has a different perspective than what you're going to see from a lot of the other folks out there. So really encourage you to join. Thanks again, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.